This is Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program. I'm your host, John Lovering. The radio show, Can You Imagine That?, was presented in a 15-minute format, and each episode managed to squeeze in four to six topics into the 12 minutes that were set aside for each script. Generally, the dramatizations were heard first. It was a syndicated show heard in the 1940s with host Lindsay McCary telling tales of wonder, amazement, and oddities that were gleaned from newspapers, magazines, encyclopedias, and books of the time. And each show featured a short story of an old or popular song of the era. The program was enhanced by a full orchestra, and as a result, both the dramatic presentations and the featured musical pieces were very well done. There were about five cast members for each episode, with several of the actors often taking on as many as three roles during a program. Now you're about to hear two Can You Imagine That episodes, one from May 15th and the other from May 16th, 1940. First up is Reward, 19 years later, and then Joan of Arc. Incidentally, there were 39 programs recorded or transcribed and fortunately preserved for us to enjoy today. I thank you for the privilege of your time as you listen to this podcast. It's much appreciated. reward for a man 19 years later. Firefly catching is an industry. 20% of all American motorists escape head-on collisions by one second. Can you imagine that? Well, as usual, those statements are true. And in just a moment or two, my able cast of actors and I are going to be back with you to prove them and others. Wait for us, won't you? Oh, by the way, uh, this is Lindsay McCarry. And here's our first item for this time. Listen. 20% of all American motorists escape head-on collisions by one second. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? But it's true. According to a report made to the American Psychological Association in Columbus, Ohio in 1938, T.W. Forbes and T.M. Matson of Yale University took motion pictures of hundreds of automobiles whose drivers never knew they were being spied upon. These two men were trying to find out just how much time the average motorist allowed while passing a car going in his direction and while another car was coming toward him from the opposite direction. Their motion pictures proved that one out of every five drivers allowed less than one second to get back into his own lane again and avoid a head-on collision. The time between these two bells is one second. The next time you attempt to pass another car, please leave yourself more time than that to avoid the horror of a major accident, won't you? Remember the wise old saying, A stitch in time saves nine. And do you remember, too, the wisdom of another ancient philosopher... Good deeds are like the seed that is sown in the spring. At first there is naught to show above the earth, but at the harvest the golden grain brings rich reward to him who has sown. Of course he meant that sooner or later a good deed is bound to bring to its doer the good fortune he deserves. And the proof lies in this little story that comes from a newspaper of August 18, 1919. 
It was on the afternoon of August 17 in that year that Patrolman Francis Cadell of the 1st Precinct was on duty in the information booth at the Manhattan end of the Brooklyn Bridge. Car after car passed over the bridge and no one wanted information until... I guess everybody knows where they're going. Nobody's... I guess I was wrong. There's somebody now. The big car, too. Be back in a minute, Ed. Yes, sir? What can I do for you? Uh, I, uh, I want to know how to get to Coney Island. Coney Island? Well, sir, you... You, uh... <laughs> yes? Yeah? Excuse me, sir, but I, I thought I'd seen you someplace before. Guess I was wrong. Now, to get to Coney Island, uh, you, uh... Just a minute. I thought I recognized you, too. Have you ever been in California? California? <laughs> no, no, never. I guess we're both wrong. Well, go straight across the bridge and follow the highway. You can't miss it. Thank you. Goodbye. You're welcome. Funny? I could swear I know him, Ed. He... Uh... Hey, he's backing up. What's the matter? Decided not to go to Coney Island? Nope. But I've decided where I know you from. We were right when we thought we knew each other. Is that so? Now listen. Weren't you on duty in the Bowery about 15 or 20 years ago, in 1902 to be exact? Yeah, I... Holy smoke! Say, you're not... I am, sure I am. Remember, I was down and out. My clothes were in rags. <laughs> sure, you were plenty hungry. That's right, and I was broke. You fixed me up with clothes and money and advised me to get back to California, where I'd come from. And did you? <laughs> you bet. I got into the canning business and made a fortune. Oh, I've got you to thank for everything. Oh, forget it. Forget it, nothing. You're coming back to California with me. And you're going to have a swell job in my cannery, and I'm not going to take no for an answer. And did Patrolman Cadell take the job? You just bet he did. And thus, for a good deed performed 19 years before, he reaped a rich reward through chance meeting and being stationed at an information booth on just the right day. Can you imagine that? To those of us who may be fatalists or believe that when our number's up, we go, here's an item that seems to prove it. Prove it with stark tragedy. It was early in the year 1939 that Michael McCabe, 42 years old of Chicago set out one morning to go to his job. Now, that isn't startling. It's just commonplace, everyday routine for most of us. But suddenly, Michael McCabe stopped and snapped his fingers in first in disgust. Then a slow smile must have spread over his face in amusement, that is, forgetfulness, as he remembered he was going to work on his day off. Just a bit foolish, he thought, but what difference does that make? He could work today and take the day off later in the week. So he walked onward. Then he arrived at work at a fuel company. Hey, Mike, what you doing here today? Ain't it your day off? Yeah, yeah, but I forgot. Ah, oh, it don't make any difference anyway, because I can take a day off later on. <laughs> okay, one day's as good as the other, huh? <laughs> sure. So Michael McCabe worked on. Then suddenly... Hey, Jim, hand me the wrench, will you? I got a... Mike! Fix Mike! Look out! Look out! That conveyor! No! No! Yes, on the day that was supposed to be a holiday for Michael McCabe, he went to work. On that day, a portable steel conveyor fell and crushed Michael McCabe to death. I wonder if it would have fallen in the same spot the next day. Here's a strange sort of industry I found the other day, firefly catching. Yes, indeed, it's a fact that in Japan and China, fireflies are captured for commercial purposes. One purpose is the manufacture of medicines, pulses, pills, and various drugs peculiar to the practice of the medical profession in the Orient. Another use is for the manufacture of Hotaru no Abura, which is really firefly grease. This substance is applied to articles made of bent bamboo, and it has been found to impart rigidity to the bamboo. 
The principal center for firefly catching is around Ishiyama, Japan, near the Lake of Omi. A number of merchants there employ from 60 to 70 firefly catchers, and during the summer season, expert catchers have been known to catch as many as 3,000 of the phosphorescent insects in one night. Can you imagine that? Now the musical portion of this Can You Imagine That will bring back fond memories to those who hearken back to the years 1912 and 15. For it was in those years that the castles, Vernon and Irene, were the dancing sensations. Ostanabe's restaurant in New York was the mecca for those who liked to sway to the seductive and languorous rhythms of the tango. Not only was Ostanabe's famed for its orchestra, for its cuisine, but it was later to be famous as the place where a young man named Rudolph Valentino got his start. It was in those days that a number called Tremotard, in English, too much mustard, was sweeping the country. People were dancing the turkey trot to it, the bunny hug, and the Gotham gobble. It was in the famous old Bastanabee's restaurant in New York's 39th Street near 6th Avenue that music publisher Edward B. Marks noted the fine sense of rhythm and natural gift of music possessed by the young Hungarian pianist of the orchestra. Now, Trey Matard was selling plenty of copies, and the Marks firm had no tune to match it. So Edward B. Marks approached the young pianist and asked... Excuse me, but did you ever compose anything? Right. No, I have never composed anything in this country. Oh, I see. Uh, well, uh, have you ever heard of a turkey trot called Trey Moutard? Trey Moutard? Why, no. Well, it's sweeping the country, and I want a tune like it. Do you think you can write one? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I can. All right, I'll tell you. Here's my card. Uh, you come to our offices in a day or so, and maybe we can get together on something. How about it? Well, uh, all right, I'll do it. True to his word, the young pianist showed up at the offices of the Marks firm. Once there, Marks's partner, Joseph W. Stern, sat down with the young man and... Now look, here's the construction of the turkey trot. I'll run through it for you and you can see how it's built. Listen. think you can write one something like it? Yeah, a turkey trot that we can sell. You think you can do it? Well, uh, well yes, uh, I think I can. Good. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Get right to work on it, because we want it, and we want it quick. So the young man set to work, and he composed not one, but two turkey trots. One was called Some Smoke, and the other Leg of Mutton. These two compositions were even given French titles in order to follow in the wake of popularity of Trey Moutard. But the titles aren't nearly as important as the name of the young Hungarian composer which appeared on the sheet music. That name was later to become famous as belonging to the musical genius who composed more than 60 successful light operas. And that name, Sigmund Romberg. Can you imagine that? And now we're going to ask our orchestra to play the French importation, which was responsible for the discovery of Romberg by Edward Marks and Joseph Stern. Here it is, a modernized version of the famous old turkey trot, Trey Moutard. <laughs> Thank you. 
that up-to-date version of Trey Mutard, which set the country wriggling and squirming in turkey trots and bunny hugs, which gave Sigmund Romberg his first real recognition, I'm going to turn you back to your own station announcer. And until the next time we meet, this is Lindsay McCary saying goodbye now. claimed a saint for more than 400 years after her death. A man amasses a fortune through the purchase of worthless currency. Can you imagine that? This is Lindsay McCary once more, friends, and I'm back with you on this station to give you more odd facts, strange happenings, and out-of-the-ordinary news stories. We'll all return in just one and a half minutes with the first one, so leave your dial turned right there, will you please? Thank you. fates were kind to Gus Hildebrand and Fred Schmidt of Northwood, Iowa. Gus and Fred were driving along in their car over a snow-covered road. The snow made it uh, rather rough going, and then suddenly their car skidded and turned over. Gus. Gus, you, you, you hurt? No, I, I guess I'm all right. You? Yeah. Was that close? Say, you two fellas all right? Yeah, we're okay. Yeah. Boy, you're sure lucky. That snow's bad stuff. Uh, mister, don't say anything at all against that snow. In the back seat of this car are 200 pounds of dynamite and 100 dynamite caps. The snow may have turned us over, but it cushioned that dynamite and kept it from blowing us to kingdom come. Yes, sir. Fred Schmidt and Gus Hildebrand turned over in their car because of the heavy snow in an accident that might have killed them. Yet, the same snow saved their lives. Can you imagine that? Of course you know who the patron saint of France is. Yes, indeed, it's that intrepid warrior made of Orléans, Jeanne d'Arc, Joan of Arc. But just how long would you guess Joan of Arc has been St. Joan? Go ahead, just make a guess. A hundred years? Two hundred? Well, it may sound strange to you, but Joan of Arc, who lived during the 15th century and was burned at the stake on May 30th in the year 1431, was not made a saint until she was canonized by Pope Benedict XV in the year 1920, almost 500 years after her death. Can you imagine that? Fortune comes to him who seeks it. There's an old saying that the school books will throw at you to prove that success is one-tenth inspiration and nine-tenths perspiration. But never was that saying more discredited 
than in the case of Timothy Dexter. His amazing run of fortune probably qualifies him as the world's luckiest man. Why? Well, listen to his amazing story. It was just after the American Revolution that Timothy Dexter, a Massachusetts native, went about the shops of Boston doing this. Good afternoon, sir. What can I do for you? My name is Timothy Dexter. I would like to know if you have any continental money. Do I have any? Mr. Dexter, I have more than I want. I have drawers full of that worthless, dirty paper. Very well. I'm willing to buy all you have. And another thing. Uh, what? You, you, you want to buy that worthless stuff? Yes, all you've got. I'll pay you in guineas, shillings, Spanish pieces of eight, or whatever you choose. So Timothy Dexter went about buying worthless continental paper money. Worthless because the newly formed United States of America had no financial credit abroad. People called Timothy Dexter a crazy man, and it looked as though he were. Then something happened. A man named Alexander Hamilton did amazing things about the credit of the United States. And the people found themselves natives of a country with sound financial institutions. And Timothy Dexter, on a crazy man's hunch, became wealthy. But you'll say that wasn't luck. Timothy Dexter was shrewd. Ah, yes, but his story isn't finished yet. Determined to continue in business, Mr. Dexter bought a huge consignment of warming pans, those long-handled copper affairs with perforated tops which were placed in bed to take off the bitter chill. Dexter bought them and sought out a ship's captain. Captain, I want you to take a cargo to the West Indies for me. All right, Mr. Dexter, and what might the cargo be? Warming pans. Warming pans? Oh, now, look, sir, a joke's a joke. But warming pans in the West Indies something beyond a joke. Why, I might just as well send them to the Hades for all the use they'd be. West Indies are tropical. People don't even use covers on their bed, much less warming pans. Nevertheless, I want you to take them to the West Indies. <laughs> Over everyone's objections, the warming pans went to the West Indies. A strange cargo for the tropics. People looked at Dexter and then tapped their heads with significant gestures. But listen now to a West Indies sugar planter. See, si, see. Si. The, these things are just what I need. You see, senor, when we boil the sugar to get molasses, we must have long-handled pans to dip out the molasses. And the tops of the pans with the holes in are just the right for straining. Can you imagine that? The West Indies planters used the warming pans for bailing molasses out of the kettles. And once more, Timothy Dexter realized a huge profit on a harebrained venture. Shrewd again, you say? Well, now listen to this. No, Timothy Dexter's nightmarish story isn't over yet. For while he was engaged in building a ship, he overheard the captain say that the vessel needed stay stuff. Timothy immediately misunderstood the term, and thinking the captain meant the same sort of stays that went into, of all things, women's corsets, Mr. Dexter went out and bought all the whalebone he could find. His storerooms were glutted with whalebone, while, the, while all of Massachusetts laughed at the Dexter's fantastic mistake. But it wasn't long before... But I tell you, sir, there isn't a piece of whalebone to be had. And with this new style for women coming in, the corsets must be lined with whalebone. Forget it. We've got to have it. A man named Timothy Dexter bought a huge lot for, for some outlandish purpose. He'll charge a stiff price, sir. All right, all right. We'll charge a stiff price for the corsets. But get that whalebone. Once more, Timothy Dexter's amazing luck propelled him into the lap of smiling fortune. But still he went on and on. His next venture was a shipment of cats, Bibles, and woolen mittens to the West Indies. The West Indies again. What possible use could there be for cats, Bibles, and woolen mittens? But Dame Fortune showed her pearly teeth again. A plague of rats infested the West Indian warehouses, so the cats were bought. A religious revival swept the West Indies, and the last Bible was sold at a profit. Then, to crown this lopsided adventure, a Danish merchant who just happened to be at a West Indian port thought the woolen mittens just the things for those cold Baltic nights, and he purchased the entire shipment. 
Can you imagine that? By this time, Timothy Dexter was a merchant prince. He was dubbed Lord Timothy by an amazed and staring populace. Now for the staggering finish to Lord Timothy's mercantile adventures. Carrying coals to Newcastle had always been a phrase denoting the utmost in folly, for Newcastle was the great British port out of which went great quantities of coal. But Timothy didn't care about that. Instead, he purchased coal and said, Captain, I want you to take this cargo of coal to Newcastle. Oh, now, just a moment, Mr. Dexter. I carried warming pans, mittens, cats, and Bibles to the West Indies. Maybe that was all right. Must have been, because you sold at a profit. But carrying coal to Newcastle, why, 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 sir, that's insane. The coal will go to Newcastle. <laughs> the stunned captain had no choice but to obey. The cargo was loaded, and the vessel sailed out with the absurd cargo. Finally, it put into Newcastle Harbor, and once there... Captain, oh, Captain. Yes? I understand that you have a cargo of coal aboard this ship. Now, listen. If you think you're going to make fun of me, you got another thing coming. This cargo's no fair of mine. I'm just carrying out orders. I'm not the crazy one. My dear Captain, no one said anything about anyone being crazy. I want to buy that coal. Huh? You... You want to buy the coal? I'm a coal merchant. Yes, but, but, but you've got coal here. Of course we've got coal. But there is labor trouble at present, and we can't get men to get the coal out. We need it, and I'm willing to pay your employer a good price for this cargo of coal. So Timothy Dexter carried coals to Newcastle and sold them. The labor trouble developed while Dexter's vessel was still on the high seas, so he could have known nothing of the strike in Newcastle. But the fact remains that Timothy Dexter, child of fortune, upon whom Lady Luck showered wealth and plenty, started by buying worthless money selling warming pans in a tropical country, and ended up by carrying coals to Newcastle. Can you imagine that? Comes now our little foray into the musical world to lend melody to this session of Can You Imagine That? At this time, we're once again going to give you the chance to test your musical wits. That is, we're going to play a part of a number, and then have you try to detect which other number resembles it. This time, of all things, we're going to throw How Dry I Am at you. During the dry days of the 1920-1932 era... Even automobile horns were equipped with the mournful cry of how dry I am. It was used by theater orchestras, singers, pianists for comedy touches. But I wonder if any of those who played or sang it detected a resemblance to a selection from one of the most famous of all light operas. See if you can put your finger on the selection after you hear how dry I am. Ready? Here goes. <laughs> Now listen to the same melody as a waltz. Yes, indeed. The melody of How Dry I Am becomes the beloved Merry Widow Waltz when played in 3-4 tempo. Can you imagine that? Now listen to our presentation of that grand old song from Franz Lehauer's most noted opera.
whether Franz Lehar caught his melody from How Dry I Am or whether How Dry I Am was taken from the score of The Merry Widow doesn't really matter. The melody is still as lilting and lovable today as it was when it was first presented more than 35 years ago. And now comes the time for me to turn you back to your own station announcer until we get together again for another session of Can You Imagine That? This is Lindsay McCary saying goodbye now. Thank you.